1: Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin.
0: Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here, our number 877-381-3811, 381 3811 Let me say a friend to my Christian friends, I hope you have a wonderful Easter. Try and relax, enjoy your faith, enjoy your family. We've got a lot to do today. Many of you acquired a copy of Liberty and Tyranny in 2009. 1.5 million copies, actually. Great, Mark, what does that have to do with anything? I'm going to tell you. I want to read something to you, but I want to say up front as a preface that whenever 18,000 people die in a few-month period as a result of a virus, it is a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic. It is a very, very serious matter. And yet, in our country, apparently some lives are more important than others, depending on what the cause of the death might be. As you know, those of you who have listened to this show almost 20 years now, I have said and I have written, including in Liberty and Tyranny*, about our CAFE standards. Simple law of physics, make cars lighter, less steel for the cage of the car, more plastic, more rubber, more aluminum. When you have automobile accidents or vehicle accidents of any kind, people are likely to be killed more easily, certainly, harmed more easily. And there have been studies over the years, and and what's interesting is there haven't been any recent studies. But when I was writing about this over 11 years ago, I looked at the early studies, because as I say, they don't really do studies anymore, they don't want to do studies anymore. There's an estimate as high as 40,000 people dying as a result of these CAFE standards. And there were some that were a little lower, some that were a little higher. And over the years, I've said, these CAFE standards, these are man-made standards. They came out of the OPEC boycott, that is, the the OPEC oligopoly that drove up the price of gasoline. Gasoline. And the theory was it had nothing to do with the environment. The theory was automobiles need to go further on a lesser amount of fuel. So they put in place CAFE standards to deal with what was an attack on our economy and our national security by the Arab states and other oil-producing states. Again, it had nothing to do with the environment. So we had these CAFE standards as they came to be known. Of course, they were ridiculous. What people did is they would drive more and they would drive further because their cars could, could be fueled at a cheaper price and you'd have more gasoline and you could drive more. And that's what people did. And that's what people do now. But tens of thousands of people die every year as a result of these CAFE standards or are horribly maimed. And so over the course of almost half a century, That's hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have died as a result of the CAFE standards. Man-made standards. Not a virus. And we never, ever debate the utility of CAFE standards. We never, ever debate the consequences of these CAFE standards. Because now CAFE standards are said to be anti-pollution standards. And because of the religion of climate change, and before that, global warming, and before that, global cooling, you'd be a heretic if you dare to raise it. And so I've raised it year after year after year. And so our government could actually take action to save lives. By dropping the CAFE standards. I don't mean dropping them a little. By getting rid of them. Because the original purpose is unnecessary. We are now seriously energy independent. But we don't. So apparently the lives of those who die as a result of vehicle accidents. Are not as important as the lives of those who die as a result of the coronavirus. Well, what else am I to take from this? I don't know of anybody who isn't taking this virus seriously in their own lives. Or these scholars who are questioning these models and the data. Or me, who's been questioning the models and the data from early on. I don't know anybody who doesn't think this is serious. I don't know anybody who doesn't think tens of thousands of people will die as a result But I never thought 240,000 would, or 1.5 million, or 2.2 million, because it never made any sense. As of now, about 100,000 people have died worldwide. So how would 2.2 million die in the United States? We would just sit there and watch people dying in the street? Of course not. But I want to remind you and refer to something I wrote years ago which will be taken out of context, even though I'm going to provide it with context, to you. And so uh, it's in the chapter called Enviro-Statism. Science, broadly defined, is a door to knowledge. Although the statist is fond of accusing the conservative of slamming the door shut. It's actually the statist who abandoned science just as he abandons the laws of nature, reason, experience, economics, and modernity, when he promotes what can best be characterized as enviro His pursuit, after all, is power, not truth. And with the assistance of a pliant or sympathetic media, the status uses junk science, misrepresentations, and fear-mongering to promote public health and environmental scares, because he realizes that in a true widespread health emergency, the public expects the government to act aggressively to address the crisis, despite traditional limitations on governmental authority. And the more dire the threat, the more liberty people are usually willing to surrender. This was written 11 years ago. The scenario is tailor-made for the statist. The government's authority becomes part of the societal frame of reference, only to be built upon during the next crisis. Now, let me just add here, you have heard... Democrats, and you've heard media hosts and figures, demand the nationalizing of various industries, demand national stay in place, or a hunkering down, I call them, rules, demand enormous centralized governmental authority with no discussion of civil liberties. And if you dare to question the models, and if you did question the models, you were right. And if you dare to question the data that is being put out without any backup on the data, and you would have been right, you're attacked. It's trying to help the president or hurt the president or whatever the the argument is. And I run on. The pathology of the status health care works like this. An event occurs, cases of food contamination are discovered, or instances of a new disease arise, or as increasingly the case, government agencies such as the FDA and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the EPA or a nonprofit organizations such as the Center for Science and the Public Interest or the Sierra Club release a new study identifying a frightening new health risk. Urgent predictions are made by cherry picked experts that the media accept without skepticism or independent investigation and turn into a cacophony of fear. Public officials next clamor to demonstrate that they are taking steps to ameliorate the dangers. New laws are enacted or regulations promulgated that are said to limit the public's exposure to the new risk. Now, this virus is a little different than what I'm talking about here because it really does kill people. But that's not my point. Let me continue. The examples of this pathology are numerous and include such scares as ALAR, sweeteners, bird flu, the swine flu, dioxins, E. coli, listeria, the Ebola virus, MTBE, BSE, bovine uh, uh, virus, salmonella attached to tomatoes or jalapeno peppers, CFCs. So for all were blown into huge panics, far beyond the actual scope of any health threat. The coronavirus doesn't fit neatly in those examples, does it? But the general point I'm trying to make here is, why do officials tell us that there'd be 1.5 to 2.2 million Americans dead if we didn't mitigate? Where does that come from? What is that based on? It's your... Why do public officials tell us 10, 12 days ago that 100 to 240,000 of us will be dead? That's what Fauci said. That's what Fauci said. That's what Burke said. Bricks. And now we're down to 60,000, give or take. Nobody's trying to downplay this virus. Nobody's trying to downplay this virus. People are trying to make sense of what we're being told. And what I've concluded, we're not being told a lot. There's a lot of underlying information that I can't get. For instance, what was the original model that was used two months ago? Are they still using the same model? When they say they get more data and they're putting the data in, are you putting data in the same model? I can't get an answer. And the data you're putting in, what exact are we talking about? Then when you pull up their own form, March 24th, that they produce, that every hospital and doctor is to use when a death occurs, and if the coronavirus is some aspect of the health issue, even if it's not the leading one, if they can tell that, it's put on as a death based on the coronavirus. Now that's not accurate data. At a minimum you should say heart disease, this, 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 plus the coronavirus, right? This is best basic SAT stuff. And when you try and put this all in context, you're told, well you can't put it all in context because this is a virus. It's not cancer. This is a virus. It's not diabetes. It, When you're dead, you don't care if it's a virus or it's cancer. Your family doesn't, you're dead. We have public officials who go behind microphones, wonderful people who say this holiday weekend, I want to pray for those who have died as a result of the coronavirus. But you know, people died today from cancer, from heart disease, from strokes from diabetes, from all kinds of things, from gunshot wounds. Now, as you know, I do an enormous amount of research, more than most, that's for sure. And I found this, to me, rather fascinating site. It's called IndexMundi, M-U-N-D-I dot com. United States Death Clock. And you can see every few seconds, every 10 to 12, 14 seconds, a person dies in the United States. And they've averaged it out approximately every 11.14 seconds, somebody dies in the United States. The number of Americans who die each year, and we're not talking about war, and we're not talking about the coronavirus. They break that out into a separate chart. Every... The death, I'm, the death levels I'm about to tell you exclude the coronavirus. Number of deaths per year: two million eight hundred thirty thousand six hundred eighty-eight. That's last year, 2019, in America. Number of deaths per day, again average: seven thousand seven hundred fifty-five. Number of deaths per hour, 323. Imagine the newsrooms in this country with their graphics and editing departments. They would have a ball with this if they find this page. Don't you think, Mr. Producer? Every day. They could have this death clock up there by the seconds. I can imagine. You know, like, how much time is there before the next debate? Or how many people are dying from the virus? Or how many people have been tested and have the virus? You could have... I mean, they have a clock right here. Number of deaths in the United States today so far, 5,927, excluding the coronavirus. And every 10 to 12 seconds, it just ticks off another one. We're already at 5,929 as I speak. And then this chart breaks down the number of deaths by state. And the categories, number of deaths per year, number of deaths per day, number of deaths per hour. Number of deaths in 2020 so far. Number of deaths today so far. Number of seconds between deaths in every state. Now I want to return to this for a reason. I'll be right back. Love Lovin. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days... I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand and absolutely free of charge, Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can, too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. So, that four minute period, when I told you that 5,928 people had died in America, now we're at 5,961. So, 33 people, 34 people now have died since I brought this to your attention. We're talking about approximately 18,000 people dying from this virus. They want to talk stats. I have to talk stats. That amounts to less than two and a half days of death in the United States. Less than two and a half days so far. Let's take California, our most populous state. Let's take a look at the number here. The number of deaths per year, 282,520. The number of deaths per day, 774. Non-coronavirus. Non-coronavirus. The number of deaths per hour, 32. 32. The number of seconds between deaths, 111 seconds. A little over a minute and a half. Take a state like the District of Columbia. 16 deaths a day. They're up to 11 right now. Again, non-coronavirus. Take a state like Texas. 556 deaths a day. They're at 401 today. And I can continue, and I will, when I return. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days, I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand and absolutely free of charge. Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can, too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com.
1: Simply the smartest man on radio, and you can call him
0: 877-381-3811. Let's take a look at New York. New York City has been battered and brutalized from this virus. Almost half of the deaths. 80-some hundred, I believe, coming out of New York. That's a lot. Um, New York, so far this year, non-coronavirus deaths. So it's January, February, March, and I guess 8 to 10 days in April. 45,481 New Yorkers have died from all kinds of heart disease, diabetes, accidents, you name it. 45,481. And we're only January, February, March, and part of April into the year. 164,817 New Yorkers are estimated to die this year, apart from the coronavirus. So a lot of New Yorkers are dying from a lot of things having absolutely nothing to do with this virus. And the biggest bulk is heart disease and the second biggest cancer. I'm trying to give you some perspective. I'm not trying to say don't follow the, the, uh, the mitigation requirements as an individual and family. I'm trying to give you some relative perspective. This is why they keep telling you if we did nothing, 1.5 to 2.2 million would have died. That's an irrelevant number. It means absolutely nothing. I don't even know where they get it from. But of course we wouldn't do nothing. But it means nothing. And what they're saying is because of our mitigation policies, because we're destroying the economy, destroying it, we've been able to save lives. I don't know that to be true. Maybe in some cases, maybe in the hot spots, But certainly not throughout the country, because the other data isn't even being provided to us. What's that, Mark? Well, how many people are dying because they didn't go through with so-called elective surgeries? Or how many people are dying for a hundred other reasons? And they're dying. I've got the numbers right here. Every second I have the numbers. Let's take Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, so far this year, 36,822 people have died. 133,439 people are estimated to die in Pennsylvania this year. How about Texas? So far in Texas, almost 56,000 people have died. 556 will die today. Non-coronavirus. Almost 203,000 will die this year. It's a lot. Let's go to Florida, another big state, more populous than even New York. So far, 419 people have died today in Florida unrelated to the virus, 580 by the end of the day, 24 an hour. By the end of the year, 211,692,000 will be estimated to have died. A tremendous number of people die in this country every year. Over 2.83 million. Apart from the coronavirus. Now about this time next year, over 20,000 people nationwide will have died from the coronavirus. It's a lot of people. It's about the same amount as a a low-end flu. But it's not done. But we're told we're at the top of the mountain. And now we're coming down the other end. That's why they're saying 60,000. 60,000 total. 60,000 total would be the number of people who would die all year in Arizona. From all other causes. 54,000 die a year from all other causes in Alabama. Over 86,000 die every year in Georgia. Over 62,000 die every year in Indiana. Non-coronavirus. Over 58,000 in Massachusetts. 96,000 in Michigan. 60,000 in Missouri. On and on and on. Almost 68,000 in Tennessee. Almost 70,000 in Virginia. Every year. Washington State, 59,000. And change. Change. The number of people who've died today from non-coronavirus maladies or accidents far exceeds in the nation. Far exceeds the number of people who will die today from the coronavirus as 7,755,000 die every day. 323 per hour. It's a big country with 320 million people. With somebody dying in this country every 11.14 seconds. When I came on the air, no, not when I came on the air, 20, 25 minutes ago when I brought this United States death clock, as it's called, to your attention, the number of people who had died in this country today had been 5,028. 5,028. In the 20 to 25 minutes since I've spoken, over a thousand people have died. We're at 6,031, heading towards 7,700. Non-corona virus. Their models have been ridiculous. I don't know what data they're putting where. This 1.5 to 2.2 million figure is bogus. It's always been bogus. I have no understanding where that comes from. It came out out of the blue two weekends ago. I'll be right. Well, actually, I have time left. I don't want to be right back. We have a a piece here that I want to get to as well. A piece about a gentleman by the name of Alex Berenson. And Alex Berenson went to Yale. He's no fool. I believe he was a liberal, I believe he's a registered independent, he was a New York Times reporter. He's challenging this whole coronavirus narrative, not that it's dangerous, not that we shouldn't mitigate, but that these numbers have been outrageous, and he's been saying this for weeks, as have serious medical and scientific professors, but before I get to that, There's two individuals in particular who keep stealing my research and using it in broadcasting. And I got to tell you, if they keep doing it, I'm going to call them out. I don't mind people using the research, and I don't mind it at all because I want the word to get out. But when it happens over and over and over again, that's a whole other story. They know who they are. They're listening to me as I speak. And I'm just letting them know. You keep it up, I'm going to call you out. There's a piece here about this Alex Berenson by Adam Shaw at the Fox News Channel. Meet the former New York Times reporter who is challenging the coronavirus narrative. He's not alone. Professor Ioannidis from Stanford is challenging it. Professor Katz from Yale is challenging it. Other professors are challenging it daily life across America is upended by the corona crisis with mass business closures plunging the economy. And I'm going to get into this because this is where the administration and I and the Maduro Republicans and I are just so far apart it's not even funny. This spending, I don't care who the hell is doing it. This spending is going to destroy the future for your children and grandchildren and generations yet born. And I'm here to defend them and I'm going to defend them from the panic of the moment. It's friggin' infrastructure. What the hell are they talking about? I want to go on in a minute with that. Alex Berenson has been analyzing the data on the crisis on a daily basis for weeks and has come to the conclusion, remember, former New York Times reporter, that the strategy of shutting down entire sectors of the economy is based on modeling that doesn't line up with the realities of the virus. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been demonstrated to be true. It shouldn't even be in dispute. And Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks really have some explaining to do, whether Jim Acosta likes it or not. The response we have taken has caused enormous societal devastation. I don't think that's too strong a word. He told Fox in an interview yesterday. He's a former reporter who worked for The Times from 1999 to 2010, primarily covering the pharmaceutical industry. In the face of a broadening consensus on both the left and the libertarian right, that see, well, it goes on his reporting on marijuana like that has anything to do with anything. Concerns that this virus is significantly more contagious and deadly than any ordinary flu strains are what's driving the current government approach in America and around the world, writes the individual at Fox. Perhaps to impart to more testing, America reports the highest number of cases in the world right now. With more than 433,000 cases and nearly 15,000 deaths. Okay, listen. What's interesting is the more people who get the virus, the less likely the virus will be back. Because more and more people will be immune. I didn't invent this term, herd immunity. This is a term that was used by Dr. Katz. And I read it to you on the air from his piece in the New York Times. Back on March 20th, is our fight against the coronavirus worse than the disease? And I'm here to tell you that apparently it is. Now, for these media types out there who say every life matters, you know they're lying. They don't believe every life matters. They support the CAFE standards. They support abortion on demand. They support infanticide. They never talk about these figures I'm telling you about. Never, 647,000, I'm rounding it off, people who die every year from heart disease or 600,000 who die from cancer, there's no graphs on the TV for that. Accidents, 170,000, chronic lower respiratory disease, mostly as a result of smoking, 160,000, stroke, 146,000, Alzheimer's, 121,000, diabetes, 84,000, and on and on. You don't have any graphs, suicide, 47,000, God knows what that is now. In fact, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx haven't provided us with any updates on any of these numbers as a result of the coronavirus. That is, hospitals <coughs> excuse me, are firing professionals, doctors, nurses. Some hospitals are actually closing. In Florida, usually the, uh, the vacancy rate's about 18%. It's now well over 30% in the middle of a pandemic. This is going to have consequences for everybody. I can tell you now, my cardiologist's office, they're doing mostly telemedicine. Telemedicine. If you want to come in, you got to have special permission to come in. And you know, they take your temperature and do what they're supposed to do and so forth. They're, they've built an aquarium like everybody else for you to knock on the glass and so forth, but they they prefer if you don't come in. So a lot of these tests for heart disease across the country are not being taken until we get back to a normal routine, quote-unquote. Whether it's heart disease, you know, cancer, some of these cancers, they sneak up on you and then they kill you. Most people who get pancreatic cancer, not all, they don't know about it till it's too late. And there are other cases like this. People afraid to go to the emergency room. Or maybe they can't afford it anymore. Because the economy has been completely devastated. It is devastated. And so when I hear Fauci and Burks, they go on. It's, it's as if they live in a bubble. It's as if the only issue we have to deal with is the coronavirus. I just said 2.8 million people die in this country every year. And the vast majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them, don't die from this virus. Half of them, almost half of them, die from heart disease and cancer. Almost half. Now, since I've been on the air, no, check that. The last 30 minutes since I raised it, the death toll in America has gone from 5,000 And 28 to 6,080. Excuse me, 6,081. We'll be right back. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days, I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand and absolutely free of charge, Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can, too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Grace wants to take me on, nurse, WABC, Northport, New York. How are you, Grace?
2: Hi, Mark.
0: <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Go uh, right ahead. We only have like you. a minute or two.
2: Oh, all right. Let me just say I'm not a starstruck person, but you're one of the few exceptions, so please excuse me for being nervous.
0: Well, aren't you sweet? Uh, thank you.
2: <laughs> I um. So I'm a utilization nurse, so essentially what I do is I review... Uh, every patient that comes into the hospital and try to make sure that they're in the appropriate setting and getting the appropriate level of care. And my contention with what you're saying is, um, you know, we have patients come to the hospital with multiple comorbidities and then they have COVID and they, um, and they pass and, why are we call? Why are we saying that it's the COVID nineteen that has caused their death? And it is the COVID nineteen. First of
0: all, you're required to according to the form. But I do want to ask you a question: How many people come up with COVID nineteen who don't have morbidities or aren't senior citizens and die? Um, I,
2: I've seen, I will say
0: I've seen more than I want to see. But, but, well, that's, but, but a relatively small percentage of the whole, correct?
2: Right. Yeah, I, I, I would say That's
0: what the data shows.
2: Less
0: than 5%. Okay, less than 5%. So that's my point. My point is, of course, the COVID uh, uh, virus had a role in it. But I'm just taking the data as they say. If that person didn't have severe heart disease or whatever and so forth... The likelihood of them dying is very slim so the more accurate way to record it i think and i could be wrong but this is my view is to record both severe heart disease uh, and the covid virus that's the way i would record it by the way grace thanks for all you're doing we'll be right back
3: from the westwood one podcast network
0: Hello everybody, Mark Levin here, our number 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. I'm not comfortable with the way Dr. Fauci handles criticism of these models. I'm really not. Uh, I explained this yesterday. It's sort of heads I win, tells you lose. That's sort of an approach. And um, uh, it, it, it's just... Uh, and this model, we talk about this elusive model. What model are we talking about, exactly? Don't we have a right to know since the whole country's turned on a dime here or on $2.2 trillion? Then I hear a report that the New York Times has information leaked to it by individuals or entities at HHS that lifting shelter-in-place orders after 30 days, that is at the end of the month, would result in 200,000 deaths. And if we hadn't had these shelter-in-place orders in place, we would have had 300,000 deaths. I have no idea where this is coming from. The New York Times, of course, does an enormous disservice. I don't know what it is about the media, but they are desperate to keep this economy closed. They are desperate to see food lines and unemployment lines. They are desperate to see shuttered storefronts with bankruptcy signs in the windows. They are desperate to see people losing their homes. The media in this country, let me be blunt, are rooting against America. They're rooting against the American people. When you watch these, these long, really in some ways interminable press conferences, because the media has these, in many cases, infantile questions, and the president's trying to deal with them, you can see in so many respects how unserious the media are. Why don't they want the economy to open up? Why aren't they looking at the numbers the rest of us are looking at? Why aren't they a little bit more skeptical about Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx? Why aren't they a little bit more skeptical about the models and the data and so forth? Why is it that they trash the President of the United States when he has an idea? You know what? Maybe we'll, we'll look at opening some of the economy. I mean, after all, we see what other companies and, are doing and what other outlets and end users are doing. They seem to be doing well. Let's take a look at that. No, 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 you can't. And so we get this leak on Friday evening from the bureaucrats that be, I guess the bureaucrats in the health care establishment in the federal government, that no, you can't lift it in 30 days. And you better not look at it, Mr. President. You better not put a council or a task force to look at it, Mr. President. We are looking at numbers now, ladies and gentlemen. We are looking at numbers now. That could result in the greatest depression in American history. Many of you aren't feeling it yet. Because the farmers are still growing food. The truckers are still moving food. The supply chains are still working. But that can change overnight. They want to talk about this mountain. We're on the other side of the mountain. We're at the height of the mountain. We're getting on the other side of the mountain. Let me tell you about another mountain. We're not even at the top of the economic devastation mount and all the health care consequences from that. These experts, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx, they don't even talk about this. Given short shrift by our media. So now there's a media pressure campaign based on bureaucratic leaks In the administration, you know, this came up, the question was asked by this NBC reporter, what's his name, Peter Baker or something or other, a real stooge, a real smart-ass, citing a New York Times story that the president hadn't seen, that Fauci hadn't seen, information that wasn't shared with them, and they're the decision-makers. So if we lift the Shelter-in-place orders after 30 days, 200,000 people will die. Now, how stupid is that? You don't have to lift the shelter-in-place orders in the hot zones, like New York City or Long Island right now, or New Orleans right now. But you can lift them in other parts of the country, for crying out loud, where the virus is barely even in existence. And there are other businesses out there who can do their their work, produce and serve with mitigation in place. We see it. It's happening every day. Look at the grocery store where you get your food or the drive-thrus and on and on and on. So again, the assumptions in the phony models, this is ideology. Let me be blunt. These models are wrong because they're being pushed like this one now, 200,000 dead if we lift the place and orders, uh, the shelter and place orders in 30 days, they're pushed by ideology. Pushed by ideology. And I would advise the president of the United States that if this is done right, it's not the greatest decision of your life. Because it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. If there are parts of the country where the virus is barely present, and where you have businesses small and large and in between, that can mitigate. We know that mitigation works, right? That's what they keep saying. Well, we know that mitigation works at grocery stores. We know it works at the 7-Eleven. We know it works at Costco in the post office. We have examples of where mitigation is working. We know it works at Sherman Williams Paint Store because that guy called us and told us what they do. And you can multiply that times hundreds of thousands. So, you focus, just as you focus your healthcare resources where they're needed ventilators, doctors, nurses in these hot zones with respect to this virus. You focus the opening of the economy. You look at the opposite, okay? The non hot zones. But the New York Times does not want the country open. The New York Times wants bread lines. The New York Times wants the government handing out cheese. Let me tell you what the New York Times wants the fundamental transformation of America. They want Joe Biden, who's incapable of being President of the United States, as President of the United States. They know, and they will push, they will push to wrap what could be the greatest depression in American history around the throat of the President of the United States. That's where they're coming from. And I told you, and I'll tell you this first again, this is their strategy, it's twofold. Blame the President for not acting fast enough on the virus, which is ridiculous, which is absurd, and then blame the president for a depression, which is what they're rooting for. That's right, I said it. Damn it, and it's true. Now, where he, in my opinion, and the Republicans are going wrong, is they are adopting and embracing the Maduro-Venezuela model of how to create wealth. Massive centralized decision-making, massive government spending, massive printing of paper, printing over and over and over again. You can call it infrastructure. You can call it a kumquat. It doesn't really matter. The consequences are the same. The currency doesn't care if you're printing money to build roads or to grow kumquats. You're printing money. They don't care if it's zero interest or 110% interest. You're printing money. So the reaction and the response is wrong. I would say to the decision makers in the White House and elsewhere, you're not talking about, I hope, of just lifting everything. Just do it wisely. Phase it in. It can be done. It can be done relatively quickly. Relatively quickly. Start with the states where the virus is barely even present. Start with the businesses who've done a good job of mitigating. Talk to the smaller businesses about how they do it. You know, we say the American people are great people because they're listening and they're hunkering down. That's not why the American people are great people, because they listen and hunker down. The American people are great people because they're creative. They're entrepreneurial. Because they figure things out. They invent things. They produce things. They serve. We'll give them an opportunity to do it in the local paint store or the local restaurant. You know, I was talking to a friend today. You'd know who it is, but I don't want to get into it. He said, I can understand there's a problem at restaurants. I said, I can't. Look, if you're talking about a pub or a bar in New York City right now, I got it. But if you're talking about a restaurant in Florida where it's relatively warm and they can serve people outdoors, maybe they have a tiki bar, whatever it is, and it's a relatively sizable area, Why should they close? You can have people come to that restaurant. They eat outside. They're separated at fairly good distances. Your servers don't even have to go up to them. You wrap the stuff. I've talked about this in aluminum or tin foil. You put it on a table outside the door. The people stand up. They walk over. They pick it up. They use it. They eat it. They leave. You clean up after them. Now, how do I know that works, Mr. Producer? Because that's what my local bagel guy does. That's what he does. He's got a table in front of his door. Nobody can go in. You tell them the order, because his door is open, but you can't eat in there. They do whatever you want with the bagel, the sandwiches, the coffee, the so whatever you want. They put it on the table. You put your money on the table. They take your money, and you take the food. Nobody's within 10 feet of each other. That's how he figured out to do it. They're immigrants from South Korea, nicest people in the world. I get my $3 bagel almost every day, and I give him a $20 bill. And he says, you don't have to do that. I said, yes, I do have to do this. Because my parents went through something like this. I remember it. Not only do I have to do it, I want to do it. And he's open for business. And you'd be really hard-pressed to get the virus from him. First of all, he doesn't have it. But secondly, how would you get it? I'm not touching any surfaces. I'm not within 10 feet of the guy. And him, he's not within 10 feet of me. And you could do this all over the country. And you could make exceptions. Okay, New York, not right now. Or maybe parts of New York, yes. Or maybe a certain bit. But what about Florida? What about Texas? California, these other places. They're not hot zones. Awful awful what the New York Times does with us. I want you to remember about this New York Times. I want you to remember about how much this New York Times cares about human beings. I will never let those bastards forget about it. How they covered up the Holocaust. That's how much they care about human beings. How they support abortion on demand and infanticide. That's how much they care about human beings. Meanwhile, they're cited by the idiot from NBC and all the, oh, wow, look at the New York Times. 200,000 people would die. That doesn't even make any sense. It would depend how you lift these shutter-in-place orders, ladies and gentlemen, if it's all across the country, if it's in hot zones, if it's not in hot zones, if, if there are businesses I can mitigate and businesses I can't mitigate. For instance, if you lifted this for everybody... And you filled up your sports stadiums again and again. Okay, you'd have more deaths. But no league is going to do that. The president's not going to do that. So what the hell is this number? It's another nothing number to scare the hell out of you. But I'll give you a number to scare the hell out of you. By this time next week, over 20 million of you are going to be unemployed. Over 20 million Americans are going to be unemployed. 18,000 people have died so far from this horrific virus. And in three days' time, 22,500 people will die from other diseases and illnesses in three days. The media hate this country, hate capitalism, hate religion. Hate Our Founding. The same damn crap newspaper that says this nation was based on slavery in 1619. That newspaper is a vile, evil, poisonous piece of S. That's what it is. And by the way, all you crackpots who work for it, you are too. I'll be right back. Much Love In. Here's a piece at the College Fix. Epidemiologists, coronavirus could be exterminated if lockdowns were lifted. A veteran scholar of epidemiology has warned that the ongoing lockdowns throughout the United States and the rest of the world are almost certainly just prolonging the coronavirus outbreak rather than doing anything truly to mitigate it. Knut Vizkovsky, Previously, the longtime head of the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Research Design at the Rockefeller University in New York City said in an interview with the Press and Public Project that the coronavirus could be exterminated if we permitted most people to lead normal lives and sheltered the most vulnerable parts of society until the danger had passed. He's not the only one saying this. This is a scholar. What people are trying to do is flatten the curve. I don't really know why, he says. But what happens if you flatten the curve? You also prolong to widen it. It takes more time. This has been my question. And I don't see a good reason for a respiratory disease to stay in the population longer than necessary. With all respiratory diseases, he says, the only thing that stops the disease is herd immunity. Herd immunity. About 80% of the people need to have had contact with the virus, and the majority of them won't even have recognized that they were infected or they had very, very mild symptoms, especially if they are children. So it's very important to keep the schools open and kids mingling to spread the virus, to get herd immunity as fast as possible, and then the elderly people who should be separated And the nursing home should be closed during that time. This is exactly what Governor DeSantis has been saying, and today they tried to destroy him. They tried to destroy the governor. Meanwhile, Governor DeWine of Ohio, who shut down the whole state, he's on TV, he's celebrated, and DeSantis is having to defend himself. He says they can come back and meet their children and grandchildren after about four weeks when the virus has been exterminated. Now, he, he argued that the standard cycle of respiratory diseases is a two-week outbreak, including a peak, after which it's gone. He pointed out that even in a regime of social distancing, the virus will still find ways to spread just more slowly. You can't stop the spread of a respiratory disease within a family, and you cannot stop it from spreading with neighbors, with people who are delivering, who are physicians, anybody. People are social, and even in times of social distancing, they have contacts, contacts. And any of those contacts could spread the disease. It will go slowly, and so it will not build up herd immunity. But it will happen, and it will go on forever unless we let it happen. Asked about Anthony Fauci, the White House medical expert who for weeks has been predicting significant numbers of virus deaths in America, as well as major ongoing disruptions to daily life, possibly for years, Uh, Wyskowski said, Well, I'm not paid by the government, so I'm entitled to actually do science. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, this gentleman, this scholar, this expert, is going to be on the program after the bottom of the hour, at least he's scheduled to be. Knut Vizkovsky, a no-backbencher, no-conspiracy nut, longtime head department of biostatistics, epidemiology, and research design at the Rockefeller University in New York City.
3: Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.
1: Mark Levin, a proud fanatic for the Constitution. Call him now at 877-381-3811.
0: Knut Vizkovsky was the longtime head of the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Research Design at Rockefeller University in New York City. How are you, sir?
4: Very good, thank you.
0: Tell me what Thank you for t- having me. You're my pleasure. Uh, you're not the persona non grata here, I can tell you that. Tell me what's happening. What, what do they do at Rockefeller University?
4: Okay, uh, I left Rockefeller University about a year ago. Yeah. So right now I'm not speaking for the Rockefeller University. No. I speak as somebody who has been working in epidemiology as you mentioned at Rockefeller before that for fifteen years as one of the leading epidemiologists in Europe with hmm.
0: interesting so, mm-hmm. so tell me tell me you know, I've had this question. May I call you professor? I'm gonna call you Professor. I've had That's this fine. I've had this question, Professor. So first of all when do we know that the magic day has come when we can come out of our homes? And how, and I keep asking, I'm just a pedestrian, and how will the millions of people who haven't gotten this virus not get this virus? Can you answer those, sir? There's nothing
4: wrong with getting the virus. Uh, In fact, most people will get the virus, but they won't feel anything. It is only a small minority of people who get the virus who develop symptoms. So there's nothing wrong with having the virus, having the immune system, finding out what to do, and the immune system is doing it, and you won't even recognize it.
0: But they say if they hadn't done this mitigation, up to 2.2 million people would have died. I I don't even know where they get that number from. Do you?
4: Uh, I don't know either. Uh, So far, 15,000 people or so have died, and that's sad, but it's just what happens during a flu season, Uh, the typical number is 35,000 people. So if another 15,000 should die this year, then we would still have just a regular flu season.
0: And, you know, people are going to say, man, you sound pretty cold. I mean, I'm 62. I have heart disease and asthma. I don't know how old you are, but I guess we're in that group. And yeah, I don't know how you get it, Yeah. I don't know how you get around. How do you get around a virus unless you come up with some a foolproof uh, vac- vaccination or something?
4: Okay. The average age of the people who died in Italy was 81 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: So we have a couple of years.
0: <laughs> okay, but, but 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 I'm I'm a little confused about this. We have Dr. Fauci and Dr. Uh, Burks, I believe, and I, I've been suggesting, why don't you have a few more scholars and experts in here? Because I'm reading things from you, from Dr. Katz of Yale, from uh, Dr. Ioannidis of Stanford, and you're all kind mm-hmm. of saying something quite similar, which is um, this shutter-in-place stuff. First of all, your data is not right. We don't know what model you're using. And furthermore, Mm -hmm. you're going to prolong this. Yes. And you're going to have economic devastation on top of everything else.
4: We already have that. What is it, $6 trillion, 17 million people becoming unemployed? It's a disaster. And just just because we have a flu.
0: So you'd think this is just the... It's more aggressive than the flu, No.
4: No, not really. If they were more
0: aggressive, we would see many more deaths, but
4: we don't. We see just the normal number of deaths uh, that we have during every year's flu season.
0: Well, they're going to say that's because we're mitigating.
4: There's no evidence that the mitigation does anything but prolonging the ordeal. In fact, we have evidence that the mitigation does nothing. And the most prominent is comparing Sweden to the three neighboring countries, Norway, Denmark, and Finland. And if you look at the epidemiologic curve in the two regions, Sweden and the surrounding countries, there is no difference.
0: And the other thing is, uh, there hasn't been a spike in other parts of America, have there? I mean, there are little hot zones and so forth, but it's not like this is the plague that's, that's moving from coast to coast. No, it's, it's a flu. You just think it's an aggressive flu or just a flu?
4: Well, maybe it's a bit more aggressive. Maybe it was that the treatment, the standard treatment, was not the right treatment. Uh, there are many different things. But even if it's a, one of the more aggressive flus, uh, that happens every couple of years that we have a more aggressive flu and then we have a less aggressive flu.
0: But this particular flu focuses on the elderly and people with morbidities. Is that what most flus do?
4: Yes, that's what most flus do. Mm -hmm.
0: And so why is New York City hit harder than these other places, do you think?
4: Well, New York City has, first, uh, a lot of people coming from overseas. So there were probably more people coming here from Europe bringing or Japan or, sorry China but mostly from Europe to come here and bring the flu mm-hmm. so that's one thing it's highly densely populated i mean if you go travel the subway here you are in one car with 150 people uh, it and if somebody has a the flu then it spreads pretty easily
0: mm-hmm. what about uh, you know Calls for ventilators and beds and so forth, and it turns out we didn't need as many ventilators and beds.
4: No. Uh, it, people were talking about exaggerated numbers. And if there is, if you hear there are millions of people coming, then you say, well, we don't have enough beds and enough ventilators. But the, the realistic numbers were not much larger than in other, at other times. The hospitals have actually a bit downsized the previous years. And so they knew that if there is a flu coming or another epidemic, then they would need extra space. So they have tents. And now we have tents in Central Park. And these tents are pretty comfortable, warm, safe. Uh, it, there's no problem with having people uh, lying in, be- in their bed in these tents. They're designed for that.
0: Do you think these, these uh, predicted fatality numbers were always off? I'm, I, I, let me say this. I'm having enormous difficulty, again, as a pedestrian, getting my hand on these models. What models are we talking about? Do you have any idea? Um, there are some models that are very well established,
4: uh, and I'm using one of those. And I never could understand what other people do. And then people come up with, like, the British guy, what was, uh, I
0: forgot his name. Some Imperial, Uh, whatever, Imperial College or something.
4: Yeah, from Imperial College. And he said, well, I have a model that has 10,000 lines of code and nobody can understand it. And nobody, uh, you don't need that. It's not that difficult. And if you use something simple, like a spreadsheet-type model that uh, I have been put up there for people to use, then you understand exactly what's going on, and you understand what the model is telling you, and it's telling you it's not so dramatic as people think.
0: I just want to ask this. Not, you're not speaking, I want to make it clear, for Rockefeller University, but you were no. the, the longtime head of the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Research Design. What's all That's that correct. mean? What's all that mean, just so we understand?
4: Well, um, I think the epidemiology part here is uh, to use mathematical models to describe the spread of epidemics and to find out what you should do against it. And so that is something that was part of my job at the Rockefeller University, and something that I learned during the 15 years I was at the University of Tubingen in Germany.
0: So this is and your wheelhouse. I,
4: and actually, I had I was working around in the end 80s and early 90s in Germany on HIV, and I was one of the people who stood up. And this was very similar to what we have here against the hysteria where people said, well, soon 400% of all heterosexuals will become infected with HIV. And I was trying to hold against it and say, no, it's not gonna happen. And it didn't happen. We haven't had a single chain of infections within the heterosexual population in Germany
0: since. So it was a scare tactic.
4: There was a lot of scare. People get very scared. Mm-hmm. And I, I am not the person to say who is at fault. But it's not good to get scared. It's better to be reasonable.
0: When you watch these press conferences, particularly Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, what what when you listen to them, what do you say to yourself?
4: What I hear is there is a lack of understanding of the fundamental nonlinear dynamics of epidemiologic. Of diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand that if you have a virologist, a virologist can tell you, now I'm simplifying, so I apologize to all virologists. Yes. Uh, virologists can tell you what exactly, uh, how exactly the virus looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and MD can tell, knows exactly how to make a diagnosis for a single patient and how to treat that single patient. But the epidemiology of diseases is highly complex and, as I said, non-linear. And to understand this complexity and to deal with this, it's something that very few virologists or MDs are trained in. So it would probably be better if the government would also listen to people whose job is to deal with these uh, epidemics and understand the imp- and can assess the impact of health policy measures
0: professors instance, yeah yeah go ahead i 'm sorry
4: for instance, closing schools in an epidemic like this year is the worst thing you can do because children are desi- well, go through a period in their life where they acquire immunity through all sorts of diseases, so they innate immune system, the one that works before you have ever seen a particular virus, is working extremely well. And that's when a child gets a childhood disease or a flu. Mm -hmm. The child, you won't often don't even realize. It's very mild, maybe one day of a running nose or a bit of sore throat, and that's it. And so when children go through that, they experience the virus, the immune system develops immunity, and they're immune. And so you, this is one of the steps. You develop immunity in population without anybody putting anybody at risk, and without uh, overloading hospitals. Children who de- go through developing flu and developing immunity, they don't need to be hospitalized.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, your point is, this is how you develop immunities within a society. you got to go through the process, and it's a natural process.
4: It's a natural process. And if you don't interfere with that process... Now, let me say one thing. Um, The natural process is also for old people to die. So if you want, you should protect the elderly people, and that is the people 75, 80 years and older, uh, and those who have comorbidities, these people should stay away and isolate themselves Mm -hmm. during the three or four weeks where an epidemic takes its course. And so you separate those who are at risk and those who are not at risk, they develop immunity, and then after three or four weeks, the whole thing is over.
0: So you protect the vulnerable, and we know who they are right now, and you let the rest of society function. And then you don't have 17 million unemployed and a cut of uh, 30 to 40 percent of the GDP. And, Doctor, I assume that has, or Professor, I assume that has other consequences. When an economy collapses, it's a health problem, too, isn't it?
4: It's a health problem. We will have suicides. I would expect we had people buying guns uh, at a rate that is unprecedented. More guns bought than ever before. And now these people who buy the guns, they are in isolation. They become depressed. They cannot talk and interact with other people. They get paranoid. And eventually, I wouldn't be surprised if I see somebody shooting somebody else because the person doesn't wear a mask.
0: No, Well, the gun control people, they should be into this then. (laughs) Uh, All right, doctor. It is just you don't want people who are
4: paranoid running around with guns.
0: No, we don't want that. But I don't want people who are paranoid running around with medical degrees either. Because I have to tell you, I'm concerned. I, I agree with much of what you're saying just because it's rational. Because nobody can answer my question when I say, ask Dr. Fauci, when do we know we can come out? And then isn't this thing going to slam us again? Because people haven't gone through this, this immunity process. And your answer is yes, that's exactly what's going to happen.
4: Tell you when this should end.
0: Mm-hmm. On March
4: can't. 12th.
0: March 12th. Mhm. I mean, <laughs> weeks ago. It should
4: never have started. Yeah. It should never have started. We should have told the elderly and the people who have comorbidity or other diseases to stay away from the children with a runny nose and let them develop immunity and separate from them. And we if we could have spent just Bought them meals three right. a day right. uh, and make sure that the pharmacy, the drugs are yeah. delivered to them. They don't have to leave their apartment. And
0: for yes. $2
4: trillion, we could have uh, done a lot for these people.
0: All right. Listen, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your courage under the current groupthink that's going on. Uh, I appreciate it very, very much, sir. We'll be right back. Much
1: love in.
0: I'll tell you what'll happen to that brilliant, expert, scholar, experienced man. He'll either be totally ignored or trashed. You'll never see him appear in the New York Slimes or the Washington Compost or cable TV. Anyway, it'll never happen. Instead, you keep getting these celebratory pieces on Dr. Fauci, uh, what a genius he is, how brilliant he is, and so forth. and so. And he's quite brilliant. Don't get me wrong. But he could be quite wrong. And you're getting a lot of brilliant scholars, professors who are saying so. And they're making sense to me. I want to agree with Fauci, but they make sense to me because they don't answer my question. That is, these government health experts. How do we know when this is over? Which it never will be. And what do we do at that point? You're going to let people now They're not going to shelter in their homes anymore, shelter in place. They're going to be out, and they're going to get the virus. With all the uncertainty in the world, and meanwhile, we're killing the economy. With all the uncertainty in the world, feeling safe at home has never been more important. That's why I want to talk to you about Simply Safe Home Security. They're longtime friends of this show, and for good reason. You just order online, set it up yourself in under one hour. And your home is protected 24 7 with emergency dispatch for break ins, fire, and more. All for 50 cents a day, just about. And we're not the only fans of Simply Safe. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe best overall home security of 2020. Now's the time to protect your house, trust me. And right now, when you head to simplysafemark.com, simplysafemark.com, my listeners will get free shipping and a 60 day risk free trial. That's simplysafemark.com. To make sure they know that our show sent you. This is very, very important to get this, in my opinion. From Simply Safe and all of us here wishing you safety and good health. I want you to protect your home, particularly now. We're protected with Simply Safe and I might add the Second Amendment, Mr. Producer. Both of them, both of them are all over the house protecting us. SimplySafemark.com, that's SimplySafemark.com. Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, as you're wrapping up your Easter on Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Eastern Time, I will be doing Life, Liberty, and Levin with the governor of Florida. You know, there's more than one governor in this country, and they're all not named Cuomo, Ron DeSantis, who's spectacular, and Mr. Conservative, Jim DeMint. Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Be right back.
1: Now, broadcasting them from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. It's
0: an idea popping around. Certificates of immunity. We can have certificates of immunity, says Dr. Fauci. I'll show your certificate. I'm going to hang that next to my essential personnel document I received the other day, Mr. Producer, from the Department of uh, Homeland Security. I could see those two hanging next to each other. What do you think of that? I'm both an essential personnel, and if I do get immunity, I can hang that right next to it. Then one day hand it down to my grandkids and say, Remember this? Well, last night I was on Hannity, and I had a number of questions that I was asking. And a lot of you obviously watched, since he had uh, very strong ratings. But, you know, a lot of people listen to this show over the course of a week. Enormous number of people on multiple platforms. So you never know who's watching or listening and so forth. But I think even if you saw the show, it's worth some repeating. It doesn't take that long, but I have some serious questions. Let's begin. Cut one, go. It's been three and a half years of this hate. These lies, smears, besmirchments, conspiracy theories, they've got it wrong. they got it wrong again. And we have all the evidence. Well, you know, they're a great candidate, Joe Biden. First of all, I want to tell the president and vice president, thank you for everything you're doing. I can see on your faces how hard you're working. God bless you. And thank God Joe Biden's not in there. He'd be calling in the nation's top proctologist. He wouldn't know what the hell is going on. Anyway, let me... I have some questions that I wanted to ask these doctors if I were there at the press conference, very serious questions that have been uh, concerning me. This mitigation issue as an example. They tell you to hunker down. I wonder how long are we supposed to hunker down till? Every single human being doesn't get the virus or can't get the virus because this is a very important question. And what happens after we're done hunkering down? Doesn't that mean millions of people never had the virus because they successfully hunkered down, doesn't that mean millions of people will be highly susceptible to getting it again or getting it the first time? They're not developing an immunity. In fact, tens of millions of Americans, as a result of this mitigation that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx are focused on, will not have developed any immunity to this. Isn't this why, Dr. Fauci, if I'm asking him questions, you keep saying this will be seasonal? Don't you really mean mitigation today eliminates the herd immunity necessary for this society to kill the virus broadly once and for all? Isn't this why you say in the future, don't shake hands? Aren't you really saying in the future, don't touch surfaces, doorknobs, uh, tabletops? uh, Because you know that shaking hands is fine if both people have had the virus. But if somebody hasn't and somebody does, then that virus will be obviously traveling along. And so that applies to any surface then. So it's an acknowledgement when I listen carefully to what Fauci and Burke say that even this period of time, what they're suggesting is not going to address this virus for the full period. Your mitigation strategy accounts for none of this. Why are you unwilling to acknowledge that there are businesses today, I've asked both these doctors, that can mitigate and remain open and encourage governors and mayors to allow them to do so. You never even address this issue. Why aren't you uh, issuing guidelines to states and localities to help them do that? There's thousands of small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large businesses who can chew gum and walk at the same time, who can mitigate and remain open. They're there now. We see them. What happens, I would ask the doctors, to societies when there's 10, 20, 25 percent unemployment, hundreds? The thousands of businesses, closures, home foreclosures, bankruptcies. What happens to the health care system then we 're going through this now. What happens to the quality of medical care, death rates, etc? Obviously, they skyrocket. Are you tracking the number of people who might have lived but for the directive against so-called elective surgery, uh, individuals with heart disease, cancer, diabetes? Et By the et way, stop what? right Are... there i 'm live right now. I'm told by a very knowledgeable individual that they're not. So the full panoply of, of health issues that arise as a result of, uh, of shutting down significant aspects of the economy, they're not being, uh, the information is not being gathered, uh, so that data will not exist. Go ahead. The number of suicides so far, February and March, that have occurred, we have no idea. How many people who had the coronavirus are living today because they used hydroxychloroquine. Are they tracking that? They've been very, very ambiguous about this. I think it's a perfectly good question. I would ask Dr. Burks, you're the, you're the top modeler there. Have you been using the same model from the start? You've said in the course of 20 days that 1.5 to 2.1 million people could have died without mitigation. A week ago, you said 100,000 to 240,000. Now, around 60,000. There's something terribly wrong with the model, not just the data. And you say this is due to mitigation. That's one of the reasons it's come down significantly. Maybe so, but three weeks ago, there was a brilliant Stanford professor an expert by every definition, who wrote a public piece that the data you're using is faulty. It's not accurate, and his conclusion three weeks ago, is that the death rates that that you're talking about were wildly off. So uh, why is he right, and why were you wrong? Another professor from Yale, again, another top expert and known as such, said three weeks ago that um, uh, what you should be focusing on is the vulnerable populations and the vulnerable communities rather than the entire nation, which has enormous societal, cultural, and economic impact, which we're now seeing take place why were you right and why was he wrong Um, some governors have attempted to do exactly that and to fairly good uh, outcomes the governor of florida the governor of texas the governor of georgia have all been working kind of on that model and have nothing like what's going on in new york and some of these other areas louisiana and i want to talk about the economy quickly real quick uh, to be clear President Trump hasn't shut a single business. The governors do. So I want to ask the Maduro Republicans and Democrats in Congress, massive deficit spending. Can you name one country, just one, today or in the past, that has grown and created jobs through massive deficit spending inflation? I can name 20 that haven't. Cut it out. Get the people back to work. Open up these states. These businesses can walk and chew gum at the same time. All right, that's enough. Now, that was yesterday. I want to focus on the latter part of this. Spent a lot of time on the former part, and that is the economy. I didn't know so many people were Democratic Socialists on my social sites. I didn't know so many people were Democratic Socialists in the Republican Party some of the advisors to the president, like the Treasury Secretary, who's a big New Deal liberal FDR type, and some of the nationalist populists, they're big New Deal FDR types too. That's why they keep talking about infrastructure. FDR was known for infrastructure, and of course, that didn't even make a dent in the unemployment rate. Because people who own restaurants, people who own veterinary uh, uh, facilities, people who work at these places, uh, they don't build roads and highways and so forth. Well, maybe we'll make them do it, huh? Is that where we're coming from? But these didn't create jobs. And they won't. Except for that little myopic area. And so many, many people will be unaffected by this, except the inflation that will ensue. Maybe it won't ensue right away, but it will ensue. And this is very troubling to me in a big, big way. And uh, there's a great piece by John helsenroth in the Wall Street Journal. Again, note how I give people credit. It's a very good habit to get into, I would say to my fellow broadcasters since says the full impact of the coronavirus pandemic may take years to play out, but one outcome is already clear. Government, businesses, and some households will be loaded with mountains of additional debt. The federal government budget deficit is on track to reach a record $3.6 trillion in the fiscal year alone, and $2.4 trillion the year after that. That's a total of $6 trillion, according to Goldman Sachs estimates. Businesses are drawing down bank credit lines and tapping bond markets. Preliminary signs are emerging that most households are turning to credit cards for funds. The debt surge is set to shape how governments and the private sector function long after the virus is tamed. And among other things, would be a weight on the expansion that follows. Many economists believe low interest rates will help the nation manage the soaring debt load. At the same time, they say high levels of private sector debt lead to a period of thrift slowing their recovery and of course all it does is encourage massive amount of inflation. Borrowing now amounts to a transfer of economic activity from the future to the present. The payback comes later. You do have something to worry about in terms of the recovery path, says one economic expert. Past crises and buildups in U.S. government debt led to changes in the tax code and sharp fluctuations in inflation. In the private sector, debt loads could become a dividing line between firms that fail and those that emerge more dominant in their industries. Because states generally run balanced budgets to avoid large debt, they're likely to dip into rainy day funds in the weeks ahead and can turn quickly to cost-cutting to keep their budgets in line. No, that's not what's going to happen. We saw it with Cuomo. It's hat-in-hand Cuomo. That ought to be his nickname, don't you think, Mr. Producer? Hat in hand, Cuomo. The Federal Reserve, the nation's central bank, will play the critical role of navigating the nation through the rising tides of debt. Of course, it sways the cost of debt service, whether inflation emerges, and whether banks and other financial institutions can bear the burden of lending that the nation demands. So far, the Fed is getting high marks from the president, many economists and investors for moving quickly. Though it faces challenges and uncertainties, deciding how far to extend itself. And of course, as Milton Friedman wrote so brilliantly in Capital and Freedom, his first great big seller, it was the Fed that helped cause the depression because it tightened the money supply. And in this case, it'll be the Fed that helped cause inflation, or even worse, deflation, hyperinflation, It'll be the Fed that does that, as well as the fiscal policy of Congress and the Maduro Republicans and Democrats. I think some people think they're being very clever, that they're going to get the economy to spike in the third and fourth quarter with massive liquidity and so forth. No, they're not. There may be a short period of growth, but there would have been a greater period of growth if they had embraced tried and true economic principles rather than democratic socialism. I'll be right back. so much more to discuss, but I won't. I have a wonderful guest at the bottom of the hour, Peter Pry. We're going to talk about a coming pandemic for this country that costs just a few billion dollars to address, not trillions and trillions. And Peter Pry's been talking about this for decades. I've been talking about it for several years now, thanks to Peter. And uh, the administration sort of has one ear to this. But this needs to get done. You want to talk about infrastructure. We must protect our electrical grid. Do you see the panic that's going on in the country today? you see the economic consequences? What happens if the electrical grid is, is fried? It's fried. And it's impossible to bring it back. Particularly if it's all fried. The sun can do it. Our enemies can do it. As Peter Pry will explain again and again, and he has on this program, and on Levin TV, and on Life, Liberty and Levin. So concerned am I about this? And what happens then if there is no Amazon? If there are no functioning grocery stores? If farmers can't farm? If sanitary systems are shut down? If you can't get heat in the winter? Or you can't get air conditioning in the summer? What happens if there's no clean water available? Your automobiles don't work. There's nothing. Electricity is everything to this country. It's amazing, isn't it? But it is. Imagine if you can't get your money because the financial systems have shut down. You can't reach your family members across the country. There's no way to communicate with them. No way whatsoever. It's all right, Mark. I don't have, I have batteries. Well, they get, they get wiped out too. There's things that can be done. There's things that can be done in your own home. And there's things that can be done to the electrical grid. Now, here's the thing. We've talked a lot about how many of these governors were not prepared for a pandemic. And I don't mean perfectly prepared, but they weren't better prepared. Like Cuomo. This thing that we're talking about, we have time now to deal with it. China, Iran, North Korea, they have the ability to fry our grid. They don't have to hit it with some kind of precision weapon. Even a nuclear blast above, uh, above our country. That'll do it. The sun can do it. So we're going to have Peter explain this. I know we're listened to at the White House, by, I should say, the White House and people in Congress and so forth and a lot of other people. They need to start paying attention to this because an electrical grid failure is a pandemic from which we cannot survive. I don't care what Dr. Fauci or Dr. Birx may say, and you won't even get to hear what they have to say anyway that I'll make this virus look like a joke. So it's very, very important. I brought it up last week, and now I brought the number one expert from my take in the country. We're going to bring him on. He's scheduled at the bottom of the hour. And he's been telling Congress, and he's been telling the National Security Council, and he's been telling people, and... Uh, one of the problems with, a, with an episode like this, as devastating as it is to, to thousands of people, the virus, and millions of people economically, is that we are myopically focused. And yet we're most vulnerable now, aren't we? I think we are very vulnerable now. So when we return, Peter Pry, what is this electromagnetic issue that I'm talking about?
1: This is America's Constitutional Convention, The Mark Levin Show. Call in now, 877-381-3811.
0: By the way, quickly, Just the News, which is John Solomon's new project, outstanding website, Just the News, and Scott Rasmussen got together and did a poll. Congress is considering another major spending package to stimulate the economy. Which of the following actions would you prefer? 36% spend whatever it takes on medical research to prevent or limit the damage from the coronavirus. 28% put as much money as possible in the pockets of Americans hurt by the downturn. 13% repair and expand America's infrastructure. 13%. So in addition to massive deficit spending with an infrastructure project, the vast majority of Americans don't even support it, at least not now. So it's a political dead letter. Really, really ridiculous. Peter Pry, how are you, my friend? Very good. Always
3: uh, glad to be on the Great Ones radio show. Thank you for being an EMP warrior.
0: Well, thank you. I am an EMP warrior and so everybody else. Briefly tell us again, what does that mean?
3: Well, an electromagnetic pulse can be caused by nature by a solar superstorm. We're particularly concerned about a once-in-a-century solar superstorm like the 1859 Carrington event that can knock out electronics all over the whole world if something like that were to happen today, take down uh, the electric grid, telecommunications, transportation, food and water, and basically end electronic civilization. This can also be done by the high-altitude detonation of a nuclear weapon. North Korea can do it, China can do it, Russia can do it. There are even specialized nuclear weapons for Super EMP attack that can destroy even the best protected military forces that we have right now. So, with a single nuclear weapon, basically detonated in space, you know, you could put an EMP field, an electromagnetic field, over North America, and it would uh, fry the electric grid, take down the telecommunications, and paralyze our military forces, creating the possibility for winning a nuclear war with a single weapon. And it's not your it's not the Hiroshima-Nagasaki type nuclear war, because if you were on the ground directly beneath the explosion, which is happening maybe 100 kilometers over your head, it's in the vacuum of space. You know, that you wouldn't hear the blast. There'd be no radioactive fallout reaching the ground, no no other effects. The only thing that happens is the EMP, but that would be enough to kill 90 percent of Americans in a year because we can't survive without electricity, without all these complicated uh, electrical infrastructures that provide us with water and with food and with an economy that works. You know, you can see coronavirus, which is chiefly a psychological threat, how fragile our society is. Imagine if we were hit with a real existential threat like EMP. And then there are non-nuclear EMP weapons that basically some people, you can buy devices that are designed to create non-nuclear EMP from uh, magazines, electronic magazines. They're not intended to be used as weapons. But if terrorists or criminals or a madman got hold of one of these uh, devices, you know, we've arrived at a place technologically where you can topple the pillars of civilization for an entire metropolitan area. And if a team had these non-nuclear devices, you know, you could basically shut down the North American grid that way, too, without a nuclear weapon and kill most of the population.
0: Well, wouldn't, wouldn't the answer be then, I'm just playing devil's advocate, uh, just like a hurricane. You send out the uh, public utility crews and they fix it. Why can't you just do that?
3: Because some a lot of the stuff can't be fixed. You know, when you're talking about EMP, uh, there are things called extra high voltage transformers, which are basically the foundation of our electronic civilization. Uh, there is 2,000 of them in the United States. Uh, it takes 18 months to build just one of them. The whole world production capability of these EHV transformers is less than 200 a year so it would take 10 years to replace all of the EHV transformers and that's just one component there are things called SCADA's these are supervisory control and data acquisition systems there's millions of them not just in the electric infrastructure but even traffic lights for example are run by them uh you know refrigeration systems and the big regional food the way gas natural gas flows you know, these things would be destroyed. They're particularly vulnerable to EMP, and they'd be destroyed in massive numbers. You know, we wouldn't be able to patrol, repair the grid uh, in time to stop uh, mass catastrophe. And things like trucks and automobiles won't work. You know, you need those in order
0: How to would you even it. communicate with each other to fix the grid?
3: Exactly. You know, once it goes, this is the kind of thing... You don't want to do for EMP what they're trying to do with the coronavirus now, which is uh, which is to throw trillions of dollars at the problem once it comes and hope you can solve it that way. That's going to get millions of people killed. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of
0: cure. Well, let's talk case. about an ounce of prevention. What can be done and what's the cost?
3: Uh, president Trump uh, is the first president who has heated the scientists and scientists uh, strategists who've been warning for 20 years that we need to protect against this. Last year, he passed an excellent executive order to protect the electric grid and other critical infrastructures from EMP. You know, unfortunately, he has he's relying on his deep state opponents. Almost everybody, there's about a dozen people who are Obama holdovers who are basically in charge of implementing this thing. A lot of these people have spent well, they have ideological reasons and political reasons, and a lot of them are just stupid. They they don't understand the EMP threat. They never want to do anything about it. The cost of doing it is not is not high. The EMP Commission estimated that for two to four billion dollars, we could protect the electric bulk power system. Maybe for ten or twenty billion, we could protect uh, uh, most of the critical infrastructures, the life sustaining critical infrastructures, and it wouldn't have to be federal money. You know. Uh, <clears throat> If you had a modest rise in the electric rates, for example, private industry could pay for that. You can actually make money by engaging in EMP protection. But uh, 2 to $4 billion is not a lot from the Washington standard. A couple of years ago, before President Trump changed this bad, the bad policy, uh, you know, we were giving that much in foreign aid to Pakistan. He terminated that because Pakistan is not our friend, you know, uh, and... Uh, is actually uh, was har- harboring Osama bin Laden, uh, you know. But if we took the money that we were giving every year in in foreign aid to Pakistan and spent it on the security of the American people, we could we could harden the electorate.
0: How, how about so, this, Peter Pry? They just passed bills that empowers the government to spend six point seven trillion dollars, loans, right. and and now they want to spend another half a trillion, and after that. We have infrastructure. Has anybody come to you and said, you know, when we decide to build roads and highways and byways and airports, maybe we'll put a few billion aside to protect the electrical grid? Has anybody mentioned that to you?
3: Uh, there, there were people in the National Security Council when the EMP Commission existed. This is I'm
0: talking in- about now.
3: No. Not, right now, nobody has come to us and said that. We're hoping that they will think of that because that would definitely be a good investment.
0: You know, Do you think it, that's better than a few roads and po dunk uh, somewhere?
3: Absolutely, it would. It would. It could save uh, our electronic civilization. You know, if we lost ninety percent of our population, if we lost two thirds or half of our population, we would basically cease to exist as a as a society. And uh, that's what our bad, What the adversaries want: China, Russia, North Korea, Iran would all like to see the United States go go away and be removed as an actor from the world stage.
0: Do you, so do you think now cars. do you think now that the population sees what's taking place here that it would be much easier to rally the American people around a two to four billion, even 10 billion dollar expenditure that would ensure that, uh, that our lives that we know it, in terms of electricity and so forth, would continue to go forward? I, I don't think it would take more than a 10 minute discussion.
3: I should think not. The American people have a lot more common sense and logic. William F. Buckley once said he'd rather be governed by the first hundred names in the New York City phone book than by the permanent elitist bureaucratic class we have here in Washington. And we can see why that is true. In the coronavirus crisis, because the thing that has impressed me—well, first, mo- what is most impressive is how fragile our society is. That something that's chiefly a psychological threat has had such a dramatic effect. Now,
0: you've said that twice. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, uh, the coronavirus is—you is, uh, know—is—is is basically, in the end of the day, is going to be not much more deadly than the flu, in my estimation. It's not a real biological warfare pathogen, like genetically engineered anthrax or genetically engineered smallpox that has a mortality rate of 90 percent. And we were supposed to be spending decades and billions of dollars being prepared for biological warfare. An intelligent high school student would know that if you're doing that, you need to have millions of surgical masks. You need to have be prepared in terms of pharmaceuticals. You need to have hundreds of thousands of ventilators stockpiled. But none of that was there. You know the NIH and the CDC failed catastrophically in the responsibility to protect the American people. As did the Department of Defense. I would add. There's a whole there's a Deputy Secretary of Defense position that is charged with biological uh, defense, and all of them failed. It took President Trump personally intervening to try to save uh,
0: America. But but I'm all for that. But they now they need to follow up and do something about it.
3: Yes, that's right. And you know. Uh, and unfortunately, he followed their advice in shutting down the economy. I definitely think that that was the wrong thing to do because the threat, uh, you know, was never that I, actually.
0: Though he hasn't, it's these governors. But what's bothering me is these governors are listening to two doctors, right? Who believe you got, wring out, you got to ring out, you got to ring out every every single case of a virus basically before you can open up the economy.
3: You know, and these same people are the ones who cro- caused the problem in the first place by being by failing to be prepared. And well, they certainly
0: didn't have the test ready, did they?
3: No, they didn't have the test ready. They didn't have ventilators. They, they had a shortfall in, in all the
0: basics, you know. Uh, I've you got to gonna... go. I've got a hard break. They're in my ear. Peter, thank you. Have a wonderful Easter. I appreciate it very much. God bless. We'll be right back.
1: Much in.
0: I want to wish you all a wonderful Easter this Sunday. I'm not signing off yet. I just want to have enough time to make sure I tell you that. All my Jewish friends, I hope you have a wonderful Passover. Man, when I wasn't here, we had a great Passover. Mm-mm-mm. The food was unbelievable. The Seder was unbelievable. Seder went on a long time, I must confess. A long, long time. But it was okay, because you keep eating, pretty much. Very memorable. Very, very, very enjoyable. And here's the thing I don't even have to cook. I don't cook anything. Not for a Seder, not for Thanksgiving, nothing. I just get to eat. It's the greatest thing and maybe help clean up. That's about it. Everybody likes to cook. Everyone in my family likes to cook. I hate it. I hate cooking. I'll make a hot dog, a hamburger, maybe a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Why am I telling you this? I have no idea. But I hope you have a wonderful Easter this Sunday. And those of you who are struggling have keep your faith. Pray to God, keep your faith, and you'll find a way out of it. And we're all in this together, and I'll be praying for you as well. All right. The week's officially over. Thank goodness. The weekend begins now. Have a wonderful Easter on Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern. I hope you'll check me out on Life, Liberty and Levin. Very, very important show on Fox. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, all you health workers. Thank you. And not only that, truckers, people, grocers and all the rest. We really appreciate you. Good night to all my beautiful little doggies. God bless you. See you, Dad. See a mom and see a Leo. Be well.
3: From the Westwood One Podcast Network.